0: It's time to awaken your inner traveler and zip around the world as money is sent to the people who rely on it. Welcome to Money Travels, presented by Visa.
1: So when the war started, they spent three days at the border in Poland, sleeping in a car to get across.
0: That's Peter, interpreting for Anya. Peter is a physician in Canada, and Anya is a Ukrainian refugee who fled the country at the start of the war with her daughter, Kristina.
1: Well... We go to church and Anya was just in church and I just said hi to her or whatever. And then one day there was a luncheon and I asked how are things, she said things aren't going well. I said, well, and I spoke to my wife.
0: Anya and her daughter had been staying in a tiny town in rural Ontario and there wasn't much they could do there. They felt isolated and helpless.
1: So we had the room and they said, look, you know, if things aren't good for you, come live with us. I didn't know them. (laughs) But you know what? We just kind of feel obligated and uh, things have worked out well. We get a lot of borscht now, too much.
0: (laughs) Anya had had to leave her husband behind in Ukraine. Her Her heart is
1: in Ukraine, and it was very hard for her to leave, for them to leave.
0: Anya calls her husband every day. But because of the bombings, his electricity is intermittent. And sometimes it's hard for him to get the supplies he needs.
1: Well, the plan is to go back, right, after war is over. So if you had to transfer money back, do you know there's a problem, mm-hmm. I don't know. She actually doesn't even know how to send money back if she had to. I'm just asking her.
0: Since the war started, a number of companies, including Visa, have worked hard to find ways to get money moving between people most efficiently.
1: What are you supposed to do? <laughs> it, it, you help open your arms to people in me. And that's what we did.
0: <laughs> in Canada, Anya and her daughter are safe and making the best out of a difficult situation, like so many refugees.
1: For <laughs> For well, Mostly where the war is, obviously, like the eastern part of Ukraine. She says that they need money for food, for clothing, everything. <laughs> the economy's collapsed. I mean, there's nothing there It's a fighting. But there are people still there living. Children.
0: <laughs>
1: orphanages, too, they have there that are in dire straits. It's a war zone. So how could you transfer money there? It'd be impossible.
0: And that's exactly the kind of problem that innovators and money movement are working to solve today. The crisis in Ukraine was the catalyst for a number of solutions that will make it easier for people like Anya to get money to those family members who need it. And Anya has one more wish. That's
1: and she said that what they need is international support, help, and I guess Permoha means in Ukrainian victory.:
0: Welcome to Money Travels, presented by Visa. I'm Andrey Viscontis. On this podcast, we follow the money as it zips around the world, enabling our fellow humans to survive and thrive, and we talk to the experts who are building the tools that will transform the next generation of money movement. When a crisis hits, once abundant resources like food, water, and shelter can become scarce very quickly, and traditional ways of getting money like going to the bank can become impossible. Refugees fleeing dangerous situations often have to leave everything behind, including the kinds of documents they might need to open a bank account in a new place or access their money in a different country. But when Russia invaded Ukraine last year, financial institutions jumped into action. And thanks to the digital money movement innovations of the last few years, they were able to find ways to help Ukrainians move money between family and friends and give concerned foreign citizens direct pathways to help. To give us some insights into how the Invisible Infrastructure Enabling Money Movement makes this possible, joining me today is Goran Denagare, or GD, as he is known, the new VP Head of Visa Direct for Central Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and Valeri Danilenko, former Deputy CEO of Tascom Bank, who is based in Ukraine. <music> Goran and Valeri, welcome to Money Travels.
2: Thank you, Indra. Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: At the top of the episode, we heard from a mom and her daughter, Anya and Christina, who fled Ukraine once the war began, and her husband is still living in Ukraine. And she talked about, of course, the issues of displacement. But from what I understand, once the conflict began, there was a real push on the part of fintechs. GD, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how Visa Direct helps enable money movement between people, between individuals.
2: Visa Direct is a leading global payments network, helping businesses, governments, and individual consumers enable the next generation of money movement solutions and experiences. A large part of these flows are actually peer-to-peer or P2P payments, sometimes also referred to as person-to-person payments. And these include real-time payments to family and friends, remittances, bill sharing, account funding, and a range of other payment types. What we are seeing in countries within the CIS region is a prevalence of person-to-person payments using card rails, which is a really interesting use case and something that we're looking to further in the rest of the Samir region.
0: I definitely want to talk about these card rails. But first, Valetti, can you just give us a sense of what it was like on the ground when the invasion began last year, and how the banks, how the financial institutions who were there in Ukraine worked to make the situation easier? So you are right.
3: Past year was very difficult for Ukraine and for people. It was very important to make a stable system of money movement and infrastructure for this, because uh, many people need money to live, money to survive. So from the National Bank of Ukraine, they didn't impose any restrictions on transactions within the country. The banking system and the payment infrastructure working stable. And this situation, we didn't expect this situation, but everybody was preparing National Bank, payment systems, and other payment service providers was preparing for any situation. And so we have the situation as Russia invaded in Ukraine. So what I wanted to say is that first time it was very difficult to understand what has happened. But, you know, stable of banking system make believe people that everything will be okay. And it was very, very important. We have in Ukraine, more than 60 banks and all of them very modern and working with fintechs. So almost all of these banks has their own applications. And when the war begin, everybody uh, trying to access their money and see what's happening. And when they saw that everything fine, everything working. People begin to think about what they have to do next steps. So they believe in banking system, in payment systems, and this systems was quite stable.
0: That's really fascinating from a human perspective to think about the impact that just the knowledge that this is stable, that that's one of the first things that people think about. Because, yes, I imagine money means freedom. Access to money means you can get out of a difficult situation if you need to. And so this notion that it kind of provided... Country with a little bit of emotional security in a very insecure time is very interesting to me. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the adjustments that the banks or that fintechs had to make in order to not just show that the money is safe, but also help people access it if they can't get to an ATM or they can't get to the physical bank.
3: It's an interesting question because if we take a winter, it was. More difficult time, because we have problems with electricity supply, with mobile connections. That is why it was quite difficult to access money or make purchases or make money movements. Many markets didn't have first terminals, which were not working because it has some problems with electricity or connection. That is why it helps mobile application inside our pockets, inside the phones, and people began to purchase some goods, some food from open markets uh, using P2P transactions. You know, when you can buy something using post terminal, or you cannot take money from uh, ATM or have problems with banking branches, but you see the account and your balance, you feel free. And you understand that you will need to find other way how you can spend money or how you can pay this money to another. So the P2P money transfers to help many people to transfer money to buy some goods, to buy some foods. And it was a vital instrument to survive. And also I want to add that using these mobile apps, you can freely transfer money to whatever you want. And many people make donations to other people who was volunteers and help other people to move, to relocate. And it's one of the things what was very important.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that is a huge shift in terms of how people could support Ukraine and even be more aware of the situation. So, for example, if you feel like actually... I'm in San Francisco. I can send $50 to someone in Ukraine who needs to buy food at the market. I feel as if now I'm invested in helping this person. But if I have to give money to an NGO and there's all these steps removed, it feels like, well, I'm not really able to engage. And so I can imagine the international world would start to disengage more quickly. But when you can have this kind of real personal interaction, it seems to me that it also helps keep the rest of the world abreast of what's happening and invested in helping people. You're right. So if there are so many banks that are working in Ukraine, and one of the ways in which people are getting money is through their cards, I wonder, GD, if you can tell us a little bit about the card rails that Visa Direct has. How does this work?
2: So essentially, Visa, as you know, has been the leading provider of card services for the last 50, 60 years. And the entire infrastructure is really based on scalable, robust technology platform and enabling payments across billions of what we call endpoints. And the interesting thing about why we refer to them as endpoints within Visa Direct is because often the entire ecosystem is not just limited to cards, but it has cards, bank accounts, and increasingly, as we're seeing in some of our geographies, wallets, mobile wallets, and other type of wallets as well. Within the card infrastructure of Visa Direct, given that Visa is already a provider of these cards, it's something that we can integrate into fairly easily. And the actual money movement is enabled via our platform, whereby essentially if people wanted to send money to a bank account and you'd need the IBAN number and some sort of routing details, et cetera, that's a fairly complicated sort of process, which people typically don't have on the fly. What Visa Direct makes fairly easy is to actually do that to a card credential or card origin transaction, simply because that's more available and accessible to certain card holders in certain countries. And obviously something that they're comfortable with receiving payments on. So essentially, it's combining the core platform of Visa's card infrastructure along with the payments engine. And that's kind of where the magic happens.
0: Were there any adjustments that Visa Direct made once the conflict in Ukraine happened specifically for that region or even other conflict-torn regions or crisis regions like what's happening after the earthquake in Syria and Turkey? Are there adjustments that get made in order to make that more efficient?
2: Well, yes and no. Visa Direct is sort of more the platform that enables these payments, right? But the actual origination of a transaction and receipt of a transaction still sits with financial institutions, which are clients of visas. And therefore, we would like to think that our platforms and capabilities are flexible enough where geopolitical changes or even regulatory changes, for that matter, can be catered for within the platform. But it generally still is the end responsibility of the issuer or the financial institution that is either issuing or receiving funds to make sure that appropriate changes to manage that particular situation and those particular flows are sort of taken into account and configured on the platform. So we're not really making changes to the platform ourselves, but we're providing the flexibility within the platform that the financial institutions concerned have the necessary flexibility and tools to make those adjustments.
0: How do you let fintechs in those regions know about what you're capable of doing? I mean, I imagine in these kinds of situations, there are entrepreneurs that want to help, that want to do something, and they might not know what's possible.
2: Absolutely. So we have a couple of outreach programs. Firstly, at Visa overall level. We have a team that looks after digital partnerships and ventures that actually is sort of the main point of contact for fintechs and other emerging companies that are being introduced or that are setting up. Some of it could be via fintech challenges where we sponsor an event and actually get companies to sort of compete and qualify for that. And there may be sort of a prize or some sort of endorsement from Visa, etc. at the end of it that helps a business get to the next level. In some cases, it could be proactive identification of specific partners that will help either meet a use case that Visa would like to pursue or invest in, or one of our clients has come to us with a requirement to say, I'm looking at doing something different. How can you help? So it could be a bit of both. It could be very explorative in terms of looking at early engagements with startups, but it could also be fairly targeted based on specific requirements that we have. And typically through Visas on sort of social media handles and a couple of other forums we have a good way of sort of identifying and working with these FinTechs and cultivating those partnerships.
0: So GD, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this shift as Valadie was describing. If the electricity goes down, I imagine many ways in which you would use a card are no longer available to you, but now there's these mobile solutions that work on a different, network, right, on cellular. So can you talk a little bit about what are these different rails and how maybe the last few years have made those kinds of mobile transactions more common as a result of the pandemic or other forces?
2: Sure. At the bare minimum, I would say while things like power disruptions, et cetera, continue to happen in different parts of the world, I think over the last five to 10 years, it's fair to say that smartphones and mobile devices have been prevalent, right? And I think people just find a way of making it work, whether it is battery charges or generating alternate source of energy or waiting until the power is back and so on. So I think the mobile device infrastructure has probably overtaken that of what we refer to as traditional or legacy point of sale devices. And I think what we're seeing in either geographies that have specific situations going on, or it could be a remote part of the world where Simply, the latest technology probably hasn't reached, but they'll still have cellular phone with data, probably. And I think as long as the connectivity aspect is sorted, and it sort of requires that to a large extent to work, then we can make sure that the form factor that the payment travels through is flexible and we're not sort of limited to one or the other. I think, again, some of the learnings post the uh, COVID pandemic and lockdowns, etc., while they didn't necessarily result in power outages and so on, but it did go a long way in changing consumer behavior, right? Because what we took for granted, being able to go out of home and being able to interact in person, suddenly changed. Obviously, in Valerie's example, this changed you know, in a very drastic way and pretty suddenly, obviously to a magnitude that none of us can comprehend. But the reality is that in order to make things work, there are still things that are happening in that country that allow people to sort of get on with their day-to-day lives to the extent possible. And I think that's where the beauty of the payments industry comes in is, like other industries, payments have also had to adapt to the situation, whether it's country-specific or geopolitical or natural disaster. Essentially, financial institutions and partners like Visa actually help them find solutions to meet the requirement that the new challenge is putting in place.
0: Ladi, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, since you mentioned there are so many banks, over 60 banks in Ukraine. And The fact that now there's this big disruption and this move more towards mobile, what is the opportunity here for fintech? I imagine fintechs can serve as a bridge between people that are banking in different banks but want to exchange money. Can you talk a little bit about how the fintechs either work with the banks or work with Visa Direct so that you don't have these siloed banking infrastructures?
3: As I understand the banking system, the main goals for banks is to be stable. So if you're talking about fintechs and developing something new, as usual, fintechs do it and they do it with a collaboration with the banks. So bank using like a platform for new products, for new sandboxes and so on. So we have in Ukraine many fintechs and pen- payment service provider which provides P2P transfers, P2P transactions, using push payments, using number of phones. So you can initiate a payment using only number of phones. And when we're talking about opportunity, I understand that everybody now in difficult situation, all of these fintech companies, but they all have opportunities because I think main opportunities now for fintech or high-tech companies is crypto because in Ukraine, many people use crypto. They trade crypto, they transfer money using crypto. And in Ukraine, we are finishing legislation sphere that helps make this crypto more legal. And in this new sphere with crypto, I think P2P transactions, P2P payments, provided payment service providers, it will be a new instrument which helps people to use this new sphere and use this sphere connected to cards.
0: So people like Anya and Kristina who have had to flee Ukraine and now are in a different country, can you talk a little bit about either the issues that they face or what are the solutions now in terms of having them be able to send money home to their family members?
3: Ukraine is a country of IT specialists and business entrepreneurs. so. Many people who leave Ukraine, now it's approximately eight million people left Ukraine, but they still have passive income inside Ukraine. So they use Ukrainian banks accounts and Ukrainian apps and they transfer money to their relatives and their families or they make a donation using their apps. So they still have income inside Ukraine. So it's very simple, it's trustable. And people use this instrument for help people in Ukraine.
0: So JD, I want to talk a little bit more about the impact that this shift or that making P2P payments more efficient might have on even something as vast as poverty globally. So Mohamed Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize for his ideas about microfinance and microlending and how that might lift people out of poverty. And that's now... A fairly old idea. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the efficiency with which we now can make these kinds of small payments to each other. Do you think that might impact poverty in general and help people come out of crises or even solve some of these global problems?
2: I guess in some parts of the world, we have fairly large, what we call underbanked or unbanked population. Typically, that sort of refers to a segment of people or population that does not have access to traditional banking services as we all understand it. And I think in that particular area, several strides have been made to have more financial inclusion. Whether that is a result of government programs and subsidies and disbursements, or whether that is from NGOs that operate in that area, either providing aid through one of the global organizations or through local country organizations, or even enablement of small businesses. In many of these geographies, people do have a livelihood. What may not be that prevalent is how that livelihood sort of interacts with the rest of the world. And there are instances where small businesses and when you say small, I actually sort of mean micro SMEs, like really tiny businesses, you know, individual people that are making either handicrafts or, or some form of work or creative output that actually does have a market in another part of the world. And I think from that perspective, definitely the type of capabilities that platforms like Visa can bring to the table And it may not always be Visa Direct, but it could be wider Visa platforms in terms of acceptance ecosystems and other things. Actually, that has a big role to play because suddenly there are people who are sort of making small things that can be now made available globally. And without having some sort of a payment or a financial transaction mechanism, the buying and selling of those goods would simply be impossible, right? Because no one's going to sort of give this away for free. So there are elements of where visa's propositions have helped these underbanked populations increase their own quality of life and perhaps get into betterment. I'm not sure, again, if I can sort of go to the extent of saying that in of itself kind of lifts them out of poverty, etc. But it definitely does give an avenue for people to become part of a global landscape or a global economy. And I think, you know, government disbursement programs are one that Visa has worked with. There are entities, as I said, that look after these micro and super small businesses that we look at enabling. And if you recall earlier in my comments, I sort of touched upon wallets, which is quite prevalent in many of the African countries where the primary form of people transacting and holding funds is actually a mobile wallet, right? It's not point of sale devices, not smartphones and so on. And it's really interesting how that whole sort of economy functions. Obviously, partners like mobile network operators and other fintechs have a role to play, have a critical role to play in that political ecosystem. But that's part of what we're doing with Visa Direct is actually making sure that those endpoints or that entire ecosystem of wallets is also connected to the same rails that you and I are connected to in terms of cards and bank accounts, right? And therefore both from a sending perspective as well as from a receiving perspective, that becomes a huge ecosystem. What we're sort of targeting right now is close to 7 billion, what we call endpoints, which covers cards, wallets, and bank accounts. So the interoperability and the connectivity between all of those form factors and whatever else comes in the future, I'm not saying it's limited to only those three, but whatever else comes in the future, I think what we're doing is kind of building that scalable platform that can actually make the ecosystem work for the people that need it.
0: So, GD, traveling beyond Ukraine, what are some of the P2P needs across the Samaria region and how much do they vary by country?
2: That's a great question. What we've seen, and in our experience, P2P needs in the wider Samir region are largely driven by what we call expatriate diaspora, which is people from other countries that are coming to work in a particular country. And the primary sort of use case there is cross border remittance because a large part of these expatriate diaspora are actually looking to send funds back to their family, whether it is back home to the family in the home country, or in some cases, it might be parents funding children that are studying overseas or any such sort of remittance use case. And in many of these countries that rely on high proportion of expatriate workers and diaspora, remittances actually become a very critical part of the economy itself. And it sort of ends up being a capability that touches everyone. So For some people that send back money on a regular basis, they probably interact with it two or three times a month. For other people that don't have the need to do that, but do require fund movement for other reasons, it may be a bit less frequent than sort of a couple of times a month. But it does actually touch everybody in these countries, primarily due to the nature of expatriate work situations. What we're also seeing is beyond remittance, there are many other use cases that are coming up in various countries within Simea. Some of that includes, obviously, what we call me-to-me money transfers, which is people simply moving between their accounts, between countries, as the case might be. We're now starting to see use cases around things like bill sharing, loading funds into apps and wallets, which has been around and, again, has got boosted after the pandemic and so on, and then a variety of account funding requirements based on specific needs.
0: You know, in a previous episode, we talked about the role that an alias directory can play in terms of making it possible to send and receive payments without the person having to share or remember sensitive banking information. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role of the alias directory in terms of the Samir region.
2: Just to sort of set the scene, an alias in this context is typically a known identifier. It may be public or private, but typically is in the domain of phone numbers and email addresses that is tied to a payment credential, such as a card number, bank account, wallet. Think of it as a mapping of data, right? right? And obviously the financial institutions sort of carry that mapping information. In certain countries, some of it is housed by national systems, but Visa actually has its own alias directory where we sort of bring in and consolidate this information and is available for our members and clients to use. So essentially what our alias directory offering does is sort of Connects and offers these capabilities across aliases and across organizations, such as mobile numbers and email addresses to these payment credentials that can be then used in a financial transaction, as we heard Valerie talk about earlier. So essentially, it is simplifying the payment experience, as we said, by not having sensitive information or complicated bank information. But at the same time, it is actually protecting that information to a certain extent and then making that available in a wide range of channels. So typically, if you think about it, bank details and things like IBAN numbers and routing numbers are very specific formats that have to be entered into very specific user interfaces, and they have to be part of the banking system. What we're finding is with alias directory services, mobile numbers and email addresses are quite commonplace, can be used to actually enhance the user experience and the journey, and therefore simply making it very easy to complete both financial transactions. So whether it is simplifying the user experience, it goes a long way in sort of making sure that the transaction is seamless and doesn't require all the complicated information that a standard bank transaction would require.
3: Elias is a very simple technology for transfer money. because you don't need any personal information or you don't need to know IBAN and how it's long, yes. So it's very simple technology and it's very popular. Any mobile apps in Ukraine, banking apps, accept transfer money using number of phone. As I said earlier, yes, you can find from the phone book any number of phone and transfer money. So it's very useful, it's very simple, and people use it. Also, I want to say that in Ukraine we have cashin' ATMs, which you can use to transfer cash to your cards or to cards of anybody. And for this transfer you need only number of one And it's very useful thing and very simple. Everybody can use it, even my mom.
0: Okay, so on Money Travels, we like to end each episode with some rapid-fire questions. GD, what developing technology do you predict will change how money moves between people or businesses?
2: In a simple word, probably AI in its simplest form. But it would be interesting to see what the next generation of smartphones can do as well.
0: What is the biggest need today in terms of money movement in Ukraine?
3: I think it's donation
2: and charity.
0: GD, what's next on the horizon when it comes to PDP transactions?
2: I would say ubiquitous and interoperable payment platforms. That's really the need of the hour, offering the widest range of payment options that consumers want.
0: And Valeri, what aspect of money movement is more complicated than most people think?
3: I think it's maintained stable operation. Because nobody knows what is inside.
0: GD, if you could design the perfect app, what would it do?
2: I would look at designing something that could answer emails based on AI technology.
0: Okay, well, GD and Valeri, thank you so much for being on Money Travels.
2: Thank you, Ingrid. Thank you very much. Great condescension. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Money Travels. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe or follow the show and leave a review so more people can find it. Until next time, I'm Indre Viscontis, and this has been Money Travels, presented by Visa.